Please remember, the information in our podcast could be a trigger for some people. And if you or someone you know has been affected by sexual abuse, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre 24-hour helpline is 1-800-77-8888. Hello, I'm Joyce. I'm June. And I'm Paula. We're the Cabinet Sisters and we'd like to welcome you to our series of Count Me In podcasts where we continue to shine a light on childhood sexual abuse and its impacts. In today's podcast, we'll be speaking to Nolene Blackwell, CEO of Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Nolene attended UCD, where she graduated in law in 1976. She established her own practice in Drumcondra, which she ran for 20 years, with a focus always on human rights, family law and refugee law. In 2005, she was appointed Director General of FLAC, Free Legal Aid Advice Centre, and while there, she was at the forefront of the campaign to reform Ireland's archaic debtor laws, also seeking changes to Ireland's housing and social welfare laws. Former chairperson of the Law Society's Human Rights Committee and of the Irish section of Amnesty International, a trustee of Frontline, the Dublin-based International Foundation for Human Rights Defenders at Risk. Nolan was named by the Irish Independent in 2012 as being one of Ireland's 10 most influential women for her relentless defence of those with no legal resources. Nolene, you've received many awards and honours and you sit on many boards. You're known for your passion for using the law as a tool to achieve positive social change in Ireland. Can you tell us where this passion comes from and your energy? Because your social calendar must be hectic, apart from what's going on at the moment with the coronavirus. You're probably getting a little respite, but normally you regularly appear at speaking events on the news, social media, or in the response to the daily crisis that surrounds sexual abuse crimes. It makes me sound very grand, that introduction. In some ways, I've been so fortunate. I've been so lucky in my life. I've huge privilege being born you know, in the 20th century. As a woman, I was privileged that I came in at a time where secondary school education much freer than it was, where women were getting an education, where there was capacity to allow myself to be and to grow. And, you know, I got my education at the expense of the system. And I really do believe, more than yourselves, having a sister, it's like you took what, what you had in front of it and you're giving back way more than you ever got. I feel that I have to give something back for all that privilege. And the thing that really strikes me about myself is that I've never really grown up. Uh, you know the way every kid says when they're young, they say, that's not fair. And if it's not fair, and I'm the, I'm the oldest child as well, so I'm a bit bossy, and I like to interfere. And so that kind of sense of it's not fair, there's still something needs doing. And that's kind of kept me on a particular route over the years. But I have been extraordinarily lucky as well. How did you go from family court to CEO of the Rape Christ Centre? It's not yeah. a natural flow. Like, where did that come yeah. from? Sheer chance. I'd like to say there was a big plan, and no, that wasn't really how it happened. So I was running my own practice, 
and I had kind of come to the conclusion that I wanted to do more refugee law work and that I had this big plan. I was going to do more refugee law work and I was going to do locum work to make a living and I was going to take big long holidays and I was going to write a book and all of that. And then in a bar one evening and someone told me about the job in Slack and they said, you might like that. And uh, I applied for it and I didn't think I'd get it because I still wanted my big long holidays to write my book and the rest of it. Anyway, I got it and I was there for 10 years, nearly 11 years. And uh, then suddenly I realized that, oh my God, they're going to find out that I'm repeating myself at a terrible rate. And then I saw the job in the Rape Crisis Center. And many years ago, I had done the course, the volunteer course in the Rape Crisis Center to be a telephone counselor. So I knew the Rape Crisis Center for way, way back. And I thought, I thought maybe it's kind of the same job as I'm doing now, but with a different topic. It turned out to be totally different. So can you start off by telling us, you know, for people out there that need to know about the services of Dublin Rape Crisis Yeah. So Dublin Rape Crisis Centre is one of 16 rape crisis centres around the country and it's far and away the biggest. But that's really because it's based in Dublin. All the 16 centres are based geographically in their own area. And I like to describe it as having a holistic approach to dealing with rape and other sexual abuse and all sorts of sexual violence because we see it as our purpose to prevent the harm and to heal the trauma of rape and other sexual abuse. It's saying a sexual abuse shouldn't happen at all and let's see what we can do to make it not happen and then if it does happen can we help those who experience it to heal? Can we also take their experience and use it to build better systems. So in terms of services, the biggest part of our service and uh, most obvious part in many ways are our therapeutic services. So we run the National 24-Hour Helpline, which is first go-to place for a whole load of people who've experienced sexual violence at some times in their lives. Sometimes people won't phone us for years after something happens. Sometimes we'll be the first people somebody will phone after they've an experience of sexual abuse. It deals with people of all genders, all ages, and it is a confidential free phone number, non-judgmental service that is there to help people who have suffered sexual violence uh, or, uh, or those who need to know for somebody else. So we deal with those who've experienced it themselves. We deal with teachers, social workers, guards, loads of friends, family of people. So that's kind of the first most immediate service that most people will access. Uh, it's about 80% funded by TUSLA, which in turn gets its money from the Department of Children and Youth Affairs. So they're, they're the main funder of it. It's not fully funded. They're the same source for funding then as well for the therapeutic services. We put in a new system last year of phones that actually allowed us to continue the service even at the height of the lockdown. But we had to find that funding ourselves. So that was public donations that put in the new system. On the phone line, about 80% of those who contact us identify as women and about 19% as men, about 1% as other. Last year, we saw over 600 people face-to-face -face for therapy. So 
sometimes people will come in just for one session, sometimes people will be with us for uh, years. And as the, the variety of people who come in, but we see so many people come in with the complexity of childhood or the complexity of war or poverty or so many other things that can make their healing so hard and so complex and so complicated. What would your percentage be of people who are coming in with child abuse and they're adults now? Yeah, nearly half, Paula. Uh, It used to be over half, but now it's just under half, 45, 46% are people who experienced sexual abuse as children first. And very often that's compounded then by continuing abuse as adults. About 90% of those who come into us are women. And just under 10% identify as men. And then there's uh, those who don't identify as either as well is a slightly growing number. The therapy services are then for that intense work sometimes that people are doing. We're building a new online service as well because we know that while we reached 600, we'd hope to reach more this year, even with the lockdown. We also know there are people, it just doesn't suit them to come into us, and we couldn't actually find a good program anywhere in the world. So we're setting up our own program, an online program with a bit of telephone coaching, doing it as a pilot for the first year, and we hope that over time it will just become a whole new tool for people. And then in addition to those services, sometimes people come in as well, and their biggest worry isn't the sexual abuse, although that's what they need to talk about, but their real worry is that they're about to be transferred between two direct provision centres, or that they're homeless, or you know that their social welfare hasn't come through. So we try and work with them as well. We're building up a little bit of capacity to work with them. And then we accompany people to courts and to guard the stations and to the sexual assault treatment unit. Not, we're not accompanying them as lawyers when they're going to the guards or to uh, court. We're accompanying them in what's called psychological support and that's what the sexual assault treatment unit calls it as well but these are very frightening places for people to go and it's just to have somebody there who knows the system and who will tell them how the system works and who will sit with them and be with them and then our other services then are training and education dealing with sexual violence isn't work that every psychotherapist does and we have learned an awful lot about it in the 40 years of our existence as a center and so we train teachers and other people who work with young people uh, about healthy relationships in our body right program. We train other psychotherapists. Uh, we train people who work with homeless people or uh, who work in other capacities with asylum seekers. We train guardies sometimes, prison staff, and we train workplaces how to deal with sexual harassment because the reality is that sexual harassment in the workplace is still a really big problem in spite of the fact that there's systems in place but it's still a huge problem so we try and work in what we call our dignity at work program to make sure that people have better systems in place for reporting and dealing with sexual violence and that it isn't tolerated. And then we try and use all of the information we get from all of those to inform government policy to try and and have a better court system or a better health system than we have right now. It has to be difficult to be doing that many things under the same umbrella. You can sing it. Actually, while there's a lot of us there now, there's about 50 people there, but a lot of people work part-time, particularly the therapy teams all work part-time. But it also makes sense because it would be more difficult just doing the therapeutic work and not being able 
to build on that to explain to our health system why there's a real need for more therapy facilities for those who have experienced sexual violence. We've been able to identify that sexual abuse of all kinds is a public health danger. And indeed, even before this pandemic, the Tisha called it an epidemic. And we agree. It's so well established in all our communities that it's nearly taken for granted that it's everywhere. We feel it is great to be able to say we're doing the healing work and also we're going to try and build the capacity of our whole society to deal with it better. And we're going to also try and build up that really important piece about how do you stop it happening in the first place. And that's about zero tolerance in society and it's also about people understanding what consent is about. Is there any difficulty with the fact that TUSA provide your funding with them influencing policies or procedures or anything that you do in the centre? In truth, my biggest complaint is they don't give us enough to do all we need to do and that our waiting lists for seeing people are too long as it stands. But the funding has been increasing a little bit. So far, they have been like partners. We right. have been on the same agendas. Uh, we might be a bit maybe more confident about moving forward than they would but it is kind of a common agenda and we're able to go ahead with our work. In some ways, we're lucky. Not all our funding comes from Tusla. We always make the point that our money that comes from government does get used exclusively for services. When I'm talking about other things, I'm talking with money that somebody gives me to do that piece of analysis, to work out how we could have a better system. We found it reassuring that during the lockdown that the CEO of Tusla said that sexual and domestic violence was one of the three priorities of that organisation. And it's, it's only proper. If we're being told to stay at home, if we're being told that uh, home is the safe place, and we know that at home, and you know, yeah. that home is not safe place for a lot of children and adults and it's really important that, that there be some capacity for people to know that the services are still going that we're still running that's why they've the government has set up the still here website as well and right. even if it's not actively dangerous that it can be a fearful place can i ask how is tulsa funding when tulsa are supposed to be looking after children yeah when you're dealing with adult people that have been raped or even adult victims of childhood rape. Yes. So what has that got to do with Tussle? Funny enough, I spent a lot of my early time trying to work out why we were with Tussle rather than with anything else. And it seems to have been kind of nearly historical in some ways that when part of the HSE got split off to, to set up this new child and family agency, for some reason, all the rape crisis centres and all the domestic violence services went over with it as well. While it is kind of hard to know while an organisation focused on children uh, should be dealing with adults to the extent that they are as well, one of the good things that has happened is that all of the domestic and sexual violence services were brought together in one unit. But that has the capacity for all of us to learn from each other. The same set of government officials are dealing with sexual and domestic violence right across the country. They should have a better understanding of the extent of the problem and how, how to deal with it. So I just wonder how they 
came to that conclusion. Yeah, yeah. it was before okay. night time now in the Rape Crisis Centre. Just in regards to Tusla, I have to talk about the elephant in the room. Their latest yeah. legislation about stress testing victim statements in front of perpetrators. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me your opinion on that. Yeah, so this is practice guidelines that they are rolling out and that they have absolutely not asked the victims, the person who's making the disclosure, they absolutely have not asked us as an organisation that works with them what we think about them. And we have real concerns about those and we are actually working to try and identify what those concerns really look like because the guidelines as they stand right now seem to have been written entirely from a defensive perspective where they looked at court judgments and the court judgments simply recognised that they weren't giving fair process to the person who was the subject of the complaint. In revising their guidelines, they seem to have focused entirely on that person. As a result, the fair procedures due to the person who must make the disclosure and to us as an organisation that must make the disclosure are not being properly protected in this area. And we are working to try and just make sure that we say clearly what that's about. So we're working on that. As a result of that, have you changed any of your policies and procedures? We are continuing that they are not active guidelines at the moment. We obey children first and we we do what we can but if it starts to put our clients at risk in any way then we will change our processes we'll have to and you said the wait list is too long how long is the wait list yes hard to know in the lockdown exactly what it looks like but if somebody is coming to us with an experience of sexual violence that's longer than six months ago they could be waiting for up to a year and that's not acceptable we can only deal with the number of people that the therapist can deal with. We really probably need to double in size that in order to to deal with it. That's the longest somebody would be waiting. And it might be that a time doesn't suit them or they want to go to one of our outreach centres in Tala or Fingal or uh, Kulak or something. We don't have the space available there. I'm not standing over our waiting list because it's far too long. It's just we're very well aware that when you reach out for help, if you don't get it, there's a good chance that you just go back yeah. in and never go back out. Yeah. And we do hope that the phone line can keep people supported in some way. So we'll get back to people who are on our waiting list and check in with them to, just so that they know we haven't forgotten about them. It's absolutely, it's intolerable, Paula, that that would be the case, that we would have somebody who couldn't get the help that they needed when they needed it and therefore never got it. If it was a broken arm, there's no way you would see somebody's arm drop off through not getting proper attention. Do you have a number on that waiting list? About 230 or thereabouts. See, partly this has to do as well with, there are probably more people disclosing. We're seeing more people than we ever did before, and we have more people on our waiting list than we ever did before. That could be down to the fact that there's more sexual violence around, but it is also likely to have something to do with people recognising that it's not their fault that they were abused and that they should be able to get help and healing to cope with it. Is there even a possibility that all of the other services that you're providing within the Rape Christ Centre, like the training and education, the campaigns you're running, that they splinter off into an agency 
and leave the rape crisis centre to do just to do therapy. Yeah. I mean, we could do that. We could have one. We could split it this minute and just do that. But where would you put the phone line? You see, the phone line is part of the support and counselling that people get right at the start. The National Helpline is one of the really good ways of knowing what's the gender split between men and women reporting sexual violence. What are the types? We can tell so many things from the phone line. We can tell ages. We can tell where people are literally you know so there's there's so many things we can do so it's really important from a policy perspective that the phone line is there it's important that our therapists can feed into our education into the training of people working with the homeless so they enrich each other rather than damage each other and that's where a rape crisis center is different to a counseling center because yeah. we're dealing with all aspects of the harm and the crime that is rape and other sexual abuse. What's your shortfall money-wise after you get funded? How much do you have to raise per year? I did a little calculation recently that frightened the wits out of myself. And it was that we needed to raise about €8,000 a week on top of what we get from government. Every time I say it, my stomach drops. How many therapists have you? So at the moment we have about 17 therapists and they all work at three-day week. So we have two shifts, like a Monday to Wednesday shift and a Thursday to Saturday shift. Is that and down to funding? Yeah, it's down to funding. And do you find the borno factor, is that very prevalent in the rape crisis centre? For example, how many would they see a week? You said they're on a three-day week, but how many yeah. clients would they actually see? So they might see then 12 clients and a three-day week. And the thing about the burnout, June, is that actually the, the three days is kind of something that has built up over time with the experience of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Many of them work as therapists five days a week, but they're not doing rape and sexual abuse work five days a week. Because you even know yourselves, as I presume, as you've been writing the books and things like that, you have to take a bit of time. And so the three-day week kind of offsets a bit of the morning. We have brilliant therapists and they stay with us as well. It must be that they feel supported and that the work is worthwhile and the work is undoubtedly worthwhile. It can be very hard. We are taking it more seriously and I do think there has been an improvement in attitude, but we are not taking the deep trauma, like the actual harm done by rape and other sexual violence. We're not taking it seriously enough yet. But when you think about where we were, where people were told, don't be talking about those things, don't speak out. And again, it's thanks to you guys and others that people are now recognising, yeah, speak out. And yes, do get your help as you need it. You said we're not taking it serious. Who's we? We as a society. We as a society still don't really take it seriously enough. I think we're still at a point where people are going, God, it would be lovely if we had enough money to actually give people the help they need at the time they need it. We just don't have it. That's not good enough. And that is partly because I do think it is hard to explain the depth of harm that sexual abuse causes. And I blame myself for that. If I'm not explaining it properly in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, that's my fault. Your books are the kind of thing that do explain to people. But do people want to read it? Not really. And people don't want to discuss it either, Nolene. That's huge. No. And I kind of get that because it's nearly too hard for people to take in 
in some way. You're kind of like me. You'll kind of try and dodge the tough stuff. It's not easy for people to listen to. When something isn't easy to listen to, I think a lot of people will turn to something that is easier to listen to, particularly when we don't like talking about intimate things anyway. We're getting there, but it's a slow process. Is, is there anything we could do? Because we actually thought we were very good at making it easy to talk about because of our humour and yeah. our whole attitude around it. Is there anything we could do that would make it easier for people to hear? I think what makes it easier to hear. So some of the things you do, like you don't have to have suffered the deep trauma of sexual abuse to use some of your techniques. Some of your stuff is just like nice stuff that would be useful to anybody just dealing with anxiety in the time of COVID-19 or somebody who's just anxious because of an exam coming up or something, you know, some of your, your stuff. So, and I think those kind of things are really useful. It's like we put grounding techniques onto our website as well, I just for general anxiety. It's actually I very good, now, Oh, good. The other thing I think that will make it easier is if we can turn the conversation on its head a bit and continue to investigate the fact that all sexual abuse is non-consensual and start talking about consent the whole time. Consent is also complex in a relationship, in working out what your own experience as a person is, what you are prepared to accept in terms of a consensual act. And that, I think, will make it easier because if we remember the thing that makes it abusive is the failure of consent and the abuse of power. All the campaign that you have about consent and 100% consent and the TikTok and all that, I think they're all brilliant. And I understand your target audience is 16 to 24 for that. I think where the complexities come in and where the difficulty comes in is in long-term relationships or marriage. Yeah. I think it's really hard to understand marital rape or marital abuse. And I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, I was out in the pub and I just a girls night out and we were all having a laugh and a joke and something had appeared in the newspaper about how many times uh, on average should a couple who's married have sex. So the conversation yeah. started around that. But one of the girls in the company, she made a comment saying, I love sex. I couldn't do without sex. I have to have sex. And she said, even if I'm fighting with him, I still get me sex. And somebody said to her, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, if I'm not talking to him and I'm lying in bed and I want sex, I'll just get on top of him and get what I need and then I'll get off. Jesus, if he had said that. Yeah. And I don't believe that guy even understood that was abuse and that was about consent. But yes. I think the whole idea when you're in a relationship of asking for consent is very difficult to get your head around. When I started talking about this and you would talk to somebody and they'd say, what, are you saying I have to have a contract signed with my partner every time I want to have sex with them? And I'm going, but even if you signed a contract, that still wouldn't get you anywhere because you wouldn't necessarily be consenting in the moment. That's like only a few years ago that decent people, nice people, people who were well regarded, who would be astounded at the thought that they would be abusive in any way, were still had this sense of entitlement. Sexual relations within in a marriage or any sort of a long-term relationship, a sense of entitlement was there. Surely once somebody's agreed to live with me, I have a right to something or other. You're unraveling not just decades, but centuries of that kind of thinking. Like in the 19th century, children and lunatics and women 
were all put in the same boat as incompetents. They were not capable of making decisions. In 1989, if a woman said, my husband raped me, his absolute defense was, she's my wife, so I cannot rape her. The law in Ireland only made rape a crime within marriage in what, 1990. And the first conviction was in this 21st century. We have come a long way in 30 years. We're unraveling thousands of years of men being told women were their property. Women are the people who now have to rethink that they are equal with their partner in that relationship. I think it's important, especially coming from my generation, to understand that women can be just as, I'd say, bad in this area as men. Yeah. So many women use sex as a bargaining tool at home. Yeah. They want them to fix the press that he hasn't looked at in months. So they'll, they'll promise him sex that night. And it's how a generation thinks about the act of sex. Yeah. No. That's why my house no. has fallen apart. <laughs> In a sense, sex was a power tool for women in a really serious way, you know, even more than the press. Like, it was how you lived. It was how you got on with, by bargaining sex. But until we see that equality recognized in relationships, I think we do have a problem. And the other thing I think is a problem for lots of us who are older. We have had sex at a time where we weren't wanting to have it. And people don't want to have to admit that or to have to say, or my partner whom I really value uh, doesn't see it the same way. You know, If we can change the mindset before it gets too fixed, if we can have equality between two young people, if that could be the norm, then it won't fix our life. It will make it easier for the generations coming up. And the mindset will change. There was a time where a, a woman shouldn't go out to work. It was a disgrace on her husband if she went out to work. Nobody remembers that. <laughs> when we're talking about consent and the fact that it's the main targets when you're doing that, hashtag 100, is this 16 to 24 year olds. There's a thing called proximity of age defense. Will you just explain yeah. a bit of that? So the legal age for sex in Ireland is 17. And it is a crime to have sex with somebody who is under 17. If there's less than a two-year age difference between the two, it's a defense. In other words, it still is a crime, but it will be judged less harshly if you show that you had really good reason to believe that the other person was less than two years apart in age from you. Does that count only for, say, two teenagers who are having a relationship and have sex? Or does it count for a sibling abusing another sibling? That's a very good question, actually. No, as that right. is a different crime and the proximity of age doesn't count at right. all there. No. And we must remember to say that when we're talking about that defence again. That's a, a different set of crime. I want to ask your opinion on restorative justice. Yeah. We did a great podcast with Dr. Marie Keenan, a professor and lecturer at UCD. She's really passionate about restorative justice. And the angle she's coming from is she feels that we really need a small agency. At present, the DPP has two options open to him. He can either go forward with a case or he can dismiss it, maybe on insufficient evidence. But with restorative justice, it would bring a third option into play. Yeah. It would be the DPP's final decision, but it could be based on 
recommendations through the guards, like collaboration throughout. The police could assess the case as they have more in-depth knowledge of the people involved and the details. They could put a recommendation when they pass the file onto the DPP to recommend that this case be eligible for restorative justice. Now, based on the two people involved agreeing, the restorative justice would go forward. Like the outcomes could be that the person goes for counselling, that they avoid family meetings, different things with two different people. But if they failed to comply with whatever was agreed in restorative justice, it would revert back to the courts. Now, at present, the numbers of cases being taken forward for court are ridiculously low. And no one has answers. Nobody has solutions. This is a possible valid solution, maybe giving people a certain percentage of victims an opportunity to get some semblance of justice. But the final decision is the DPP is because I feel at one stage of our recovery, we wouldn't have gone through the courts at all. It was so shameful to have this deeply personal intimate details be out in public and if it could have been resolved in a court of law somewhere it's nearly always somebody you know and certain circumstances they would prefer to go through another situation where they're not destroyed through the court system and they don't because you have the legal background Mm. what your viewpoint on this would be so i started off very um dubious june about the whole area of restorative justice in this intimate area of intimate violence because as you say most abusers closely related to the people that they abuse mary keenan's book made me think it was possible all right i read the essays and i thought "Mm, there's something to it myself and my colleague shirley scott uh, we are keeping in touch with it just kind of see how this develops. There are drawbacks to it in the area of intimate violence. And I'm kind of drawing on my own experience as a family law solicitor when I was in practice as well. And that is that it needs to be really carefully managed if the same power dynamics are not to come in to the restorative justice that were in the abuse in the first place. Very often the abuse happens because of such, there's such a power imbalance between the abuser and the abused, um, and there's such capacity for manipulation by the abuser of the abused. If it is your father, if it is your partner or your brother, in those cases, your, your whole circle is disrupted, and there is the capacity for manipulation and abuse. Having said that, there is, on the other hand, the reality that some people will never, ever go to court and wouldn't, no matter how good their evidence was, even if the guards, they won't go to court. And so to have that purge tool there, I think will be valuable to some when it is well developed. And I have to say the way she's doing it is just, it is so careful in how they are developing it. Facing Forward has been thoughtful about it as well. A lot of the problem right now in the court is that the only person who has no support, who is, who's under pressure from everybody, is the person who's disclosing the abuse, the victim of the crime. Same worry I would have about, about restorative justice. Would people be pushed into it? Would families say, oh, well, why don't, why don't you try that instead? But the one thing Marie is really adamant about, and there's, there's no moving the bar, is that this has to be victim-initiated. So it yeah. cannot be coming from a family 
or the abuser or anybody else it has to be led and has to be asked for by the, the victim themselves preparation might be counseling in advance uh, just so they're clear in their own mind because again i think it will happen i don't think it'll be a wide solution and i think we have to be really really careful to make sure that it is victim initiated as you put it there and that the victim is in a place and has the kind of confidence that they need in order to make a good decision for themselves it would be only a percentage of people that this would even work for or be open to it's just another percentage that otherwise wouldn't get any yeah 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 you think it's very delicate and anything to do well what did marie put it anything to do with the human endeavor involves huge risk but it's worth putting in the time and the effort and she went to great lengths explaining the time that would go into preparation vital importance of having the right people you know the right skill sets in order to be able to initiate any of that because not all people who practice restorative justice are capable of managing these kind of cases you're saying in belgium they do it in confidential centers yeah so i'd definitely be of the school though that the victim decision must be an informed decision and that can often take a long time for people to get out from under the thumb particularly i think people who are abused as children like you your your mindset can be warped by the abuser no can be (laughs) yeah but without a doubt the number of people who really just want to know the truth did they mean it why did they do it these are things that matter more to some people than any conviction or any compensation so it has its place how do you go about doing it so that the victim isn't harmed still we're still working and learning what that looks like so do you find that through the covid a difference in reporting or contacting have you noticed a drop or an increase we've had to change the way we do therapy with the people we're working with as well we're not doing face-to-face at the moment people don't want to come into us and it's not safe anyway so we're doing it online uh, by phone and our online pilot program is working fine in terms of the phone line it was interesting that we haven't noticed much of an increase still when you think about it's totally understandable if you're stuck in the same house as the person who's causing the abuse you have to find your opportunity and they're not going to work and then even if the abuse isn't in the home you need enough privacy to be able to talk about things that are very private we have had people who've been phoning from their cars there's a real sense, I think not only us, but I think maybe all the rape crisis centres, that we will hear afterwards yeah. uh, where things have gone wrong. But Doesn't this kind of demonstrate the value in a 24-hour hotline? Yeah. A lot of people will wait till everybody's in bed. Exactly. That might be their only opportunity. Yeah. And actually, a lot of the people who are phoning at, late at night are exactly that, Paula. They're waiting until everyone's gone to bed um, and then they're able to make the call. Rape crisis centres, not just us, all of the centres and all the domestic violence uh, centres have not had the funding we needed over the past decade. So we're only 
we only now have the technology to be able to do the phone well and we haven't been able to build up the web chat although we were nearly there we'd love to be, have web chat as well for people whom even late at night maybe a phone won't work but they might be able to do a bit of a web chat we're hoping to be there really before the lockdown is over the center was so badly damaged during the last recession that's only now we're putting anything into our infrastructure. Do you feel like there was a missed opportunity or anything with the TikTok campaign clashing with coronavirus? Oh way? yeah. That's a very important age group that you're yeah. impacting there. Actually you know the way though when, when you actually get the chance to do something you wanted to do you're very grateful that it happened at all. We did it on I think the 6th of March yeah. And by the following weekend, the schools had been closed. And while all ours were over 18, some of them were still in school. And there isn't a chance in the world that we would have. And what we were able to do was bring 22 of Ireland's most influential TikTokers together. And we had the best conversations around consent with them. So there are 22 very influential young people out there doing their TikToks, but they're also absolutely clued in now to what we were trying to talk about. So if for nothing other than just bringing together 22 influencers, it was fantastic. They found that the statements we were making were non-judgmental, they, they felt they were age appropriate, they are, they're full of energy, and like they have followers all over the world. And we'll pick it up again because it's That's too good exactly. to lose. Yeah. I'm delighted now to hear you'll take yeah. it up again because it is such an important age group and yeah. it's getting very little sexual education and consent yeah. and all that. So it's brilliant. I'm delighted. And yeah. the other campaign that's going, where are you as the drivers behind that, that the hashtag still here? That's actually a government campaign being done with all the frontline agencies. Right. Again, I think it is an advance in our society's thinking about domestic and sexual violence, recognising the unsafe nature of the home for so many. So when they were pressing out the message, stay home, they had to recognise that that was going to be downright dangerous for some. They've done it in conjunction with the various frontline agencies to show they're there. And it was important because people were saying to us on the phone, they were saying things like, gosh, I didn't know you were still running the phone line. A lot of people did think that the services have closed down. And in fact, they've all stayed open and they're all working. Well, this won't be worth the wisdom, really. But I think, in a sense, I was particularly anxious to do this podcast with you because the Kavanaugh sisters have been a very important part of recognizing the harmful nature of all forms of sexual violence and also of normalizing the conversation. You don't make light of it, it's not trivial, but at the same time you help people to talk about it. It's the hidden nature of sexual violence that is partly responsible for the fact that we don't even know how bad it is really, that it's hidden means we can't deal with it. And so I would say to you, keep up the good work because you're, you're making it easier for other people to have the language that they need to talk about something that we just don't talk about enough to fix the problem. Thank you very much. Thank you. Forgetting finance, what would you name as your biggest obstacle? 
in doing the job you want to do in the Rink Price Centre? Finance is a problem for every charity always, but for us, there was a sense that people would prefer to focus on a, a good cause that was, it's a hard cause sometimes to fundraise for. You know, I do say in my next life, I'll come back and if I have to do fundraising, I'll do it for puppies, for children in, in hospital who are going to get better. If it's any consolation, Carrie aren't any better off than you are. Yeah, that's true. But you see, once you mentioned in rape and sexual abuse, and people can't see the outcome just as easily, you know, it's yeah. very hard to get kind of a really cute photo of the impact of it. Having said that, we have different people who fundraise. We have devoted people who go out on our flag day on a regular basis and they want to fund for services. And then we have people who say, no, I really want this problem of consent sorted out and I'll give you funding for that. And then funding from philanthropy for to do the online program. So different people have different mindsets. The real issue for us actually is that government aren't fully funding health services that we operate. They should be. It's their obligation, really, under the Istanbul Convention and in all sorts of ways, we should be getting full funding. But then the whole health service is like that, that nobody gets as much as they need, but we should be getting that. And we have to be really careful that when we come out of lockdown, services like ours, which are small and could easily disappeared, that they keep their priority because it matters so much to so many people. In fairness, Nolene, half of the other people who are attending all the other health services are victims of abuse who have never got it dealt with. Yeah, and it's, it's funny. One of the things I'd like us to do when we have a minute is look at the number of things that our clients also complain about. So, you know, like you start with anxiety, anorexia, the rest of it, and you can work down BCD. So that like exactly, it is true to say that the abuse is often the underlying cause for so many other things that are wrong with people. Really, I think though, Nolan, they're not gonna have a choice in this one in terms of funding, because when the world stopped, stood still, the only thing that was news on was domestic violence, abuse. So yeah. I think like they'll be, they'll find it very difficult to ignore the reality of it to some extent when this is all yeah. over. It has to be some kind of legal thing now, and you'd know about this now. But if they're saying that you were open then because you were obviously considered an essential, yeah, that title can't be removed just because COVID-19 sorted. Exactly. I'll be saying that, I can yes. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> you also said earlier, Nolene, that the government were actually saying this was an epidemic. This was pre-COVID-19. Yeah. Patricia said, yeah. Do you think there is the will to do anything about this? Because I really think if the government were behind us, there's no limits to what we could do here. Yeah. I think there has been quite a big move. When we were looking to do Savvy 2, and you know how that started, and we won't have results for a couple of years, but at least another survey started. But I spoke to a very influential person in government policy about beforehand, and I said, why don't you do it? It's 20 years since the last one. He said, but there's no problem. We all know there's plenty of sexual violence out there. And I thought that was the most 
dismissive thing I had ever heard about it. It's like saying the poor are always, are always with us, so you don't have to mind them. In fact, I think we are making some progress with government. All of us, you guys, us, all of us. There was at least that understanding with this, that exactly when the world stood still, domestic violence did not, and that included sexual violence. So we're making some progress, but it has to be considered as another public health hazard. And we'll have to keep plugging away at that. It's not really factored into the health system because you tend not to go to an acute hospital with it. It's every system, the health system, the prison system. Housing, poverty, education. A lot of it you wouldn't know though, Paula, because look how long it took us to actually realize that no but that's what nolan is saying that they have to realize that it's not it is a public health issue i think if we keep reminding people it's just another part of the health system that we have to deal with because we haven't educated our young people properly and because there isn't enough society intolerance if we keep looking at that we we will make progress we're making progress i agree so thanks a million Thanks, guys. I just want to say thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time. And we're only blessed in one way that we have the COVID-19 now because I don't think we'd have got this time from you. You wouldn't have had it to give even if you wanted to. Absolutely honoured to be on your podcast. You're a brilliant, the right woman in the right job at the right place and time. Thanks a million. Good luck. Thank you for listening. Hopefully some of the information we've shared will resonate with you and bring you to a place where you can have compassion for yourself. Please know that no matter how you feel or how you respond to the abuse, it was normal. We're hopeful and optimistic that those in a position of power to bring about change will be moved into action so we can finally eradicate childhood sexual abuse. So please spread the word and share the information. The decision to heal from childhood sexual abuse places you on the most important journey of your life. You're in charge of this journey. Only you know what works for you and what doesn't. It takes as long as it takes because there's no rush in it and there's no fake in it. You have to feel it. And just as the ripple of pain that you're in goes out and impacts all of those around you, so does the healing and the more you heal the more everyone around you benefits from your healing you've been listening to the Kavanagh sisters podcast you can contact us through facebook twitter and instagram or email the Kavanagh sisters at gmail.com